Hello, Canucks fans, and welcome into episode 104 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. Doug, we got a quick little two-game flight this week, so let's get into it. The Canucks came out of the All-Star break and played the Arizona Coyotes. Vancouver won 5-1. Oliver ekman Larson had three assists against his former team. Connor Garland potted a goal, and Noah Juleson also had two assists in this game. Canucks found themselves down 5-0 in the first period against the New York Islanders. Ended up making it interesting, losing 6-3. Luke Shen had a solid game, an assist away from the Gordie Howe. Petey with a nice snipe as well. Uh, but really, the Canucks got out of this one pretty early. But yeah, made it entertaining at least. Doug, how does this work? Again, you get all the wins and I get all the losses. Yeah, luck of the draw, I guess, eh? Um... Yeah, I mean, there's only two games on the docket this week, but yeah, still, I definitely lucked out here. It was 0-2 last week and 0-1 this week now. Well, I will say this. Uh, the game last night, uh, we are recording on Thursday, the 10th of January. But the game last night, I mean, a- after that first period, I think it, we were all thinking to ourselves, this could go down as one of the most ugly games in recent memory. The, the last game that I... Thought could have gotten us out of hand as the game last night was also against the Islanders when I believe the Canucks gave up like what was it five or six goals in one period against the Islanders as well but uh they had a decent you know pushback in the second but obviously the third period they just kind of ran out of gas and uh, couldn't finish the job I hate to break it to you Doug but it's February not January ah it is you're right you're right yeah it's uh, that's a good thing it that's is. Good I agree. Thing. It means this year, this year is moving along, and uh, that's what we need right now. Yeah, it's all a blur to me, man. <laughs> January, February. I don't even remember the the month changing over. To be honest. Ah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, you're still in T dot as well. Is it warmed up at all? I know the Canucks got the Leafs next on uh, the horizon here as well. It has warmed up the last I want to say three four days. It's finally starting to get warmer again. Uh, the snow is slowly melting and yeah, it's nice. It's, I mean, even today, like I only had one layer when I left, uh, my, my Airbnb to work today, as opposed to the usual two. You know what I was just thinking is that, you know how we all bitch and moan here in Vancouver about the, the favoritism and the four o'clock starts that the Leafs always get when they come here for you being in Toronto for this. This is kind of making it a normal start time for you, isn't it? You're probably like, oh, sweet, uh, a four o'clock start on the West Coast. It's seven o'clock for me. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it was weird last night because the game started late and I didn't really understand why it was starting so late. Uh, but I've just honestly, I've gone old school. And uh, since I've been in Toronto, I've honestly just been listening to the radio call. Uh, it, it, the radio call seems to be at least the app I use to listen to it seems to be about a 30-second delay from what's actually happening. Often, I'll be on Twitter, and people are kind of like hooting and hollering or name-dropping the goal score, and the broadcast I'm listening to hasn't really gotten to that point yet. But uh, yeah, I like listening to the radio call. It's something that uh, I used to do when I was a kid at my great-grandfather's place, uh, BC Lions games and Canuck games, and it's nice to, uh, to hearken back to that old, simpler time. 
There was a game recently, I think it was the Nashville game, where um, I was coming back from a, a yoga class, classic Vancouver thing, and it was like right at 7 o'clock it ended, so I just put up, brought my headphones and I was walking back and I listened to most of the first period on the radio, and it, it is nice, because like you, I grew up with more games on the radio, listening to Jim Robson and Tom Larshide call the games, and you know, it, a lot of them went past my bedtime, so I'd have it on the clock radio with me in, in bed, and that was how I really became a big Canucks fan back in those days. And there is something nice uh, about the radio. I mean, I I will still always prefer to watch the game, but I really don't have a problem with uh, listening to the game get called as well. Because you know how it is sometimes when you got the game on, you're doing shit around the house anyways, right? Like, you know, maybe you're cooking dinner, or maybe you're just trying to take care of something, or maybe an animal is attacking you or whatever it is. And you've kind of, you you know, you're not watching all the game, but you're listening to the game. And fortunately, we have great commentators there and Jim and John as well. But I hear what you're saying about the radio. Yeah, I agree. Often, you know, you just got the game in the background and you're puttering around the house, you're cooking dinner, like you said, fending off animals attacking you in your apartment. Um, But yeah, I mean, I remember listening to the radio as as a kid, listening to most of the Canuck games because they used to black out a lot, a majority of the uh, home games, obviously, because they were trying to entice fans to go to the game and buy tickets. I think they still do it in some markets in the CFL, and it's probably another reason why the CFL is failing so miserably across Canada. Um, and then CKNW, right afterwards, you would get Dan Russell, you know, for the post game. And you had like crazy callers like the pauser. Yeah, and, sports talk. Yeah, man. And I, that was one of my first memories of like sports talk radio was Dan Russell's sports talk show. And it was broadcast all throughout B.C., yeah, I called into that a few times. I always, as the first times I ever had my voice on the radio, was calling into Dan Russell on Sports Talk. And, you know, I'd always have some pretty generic question, I'm sure. Like, you know, do you think Pavel Bure and Alex McGillney will play on the same line or something? You know, I don't know. Like, you know, I'm sure it was something pretty generic, but I used to, to love that. And it was really, again, before social media, that was how you got a real pulse in the province uh, of what was going on and what was the feeling in different parts and who were these crazy characters that were calling in from Quinnell or, or wherever else that you're just like, you know, here is recurring callers. And that was really our version uh, of Twitter back then. Yeah, it was, it was a different time, man. And uh, a simpler time, I guess, but I, I, I do cherish those memories because it was, it was pretty fun. And you're like, oh, no, not Dave from Quinnell again. Here we go. <laughs> He's just going to shit all over the Canucks, even though we had a big win, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Calling in with his absurd trades again with the St. Louis Blues because yeah. he hadn't made a trade with the Blues in like three months. Um, when I watch the games uh, on my stream, uh, I go through like an Apple TV box and I think I have about a 30 second delay as well. So what I try and do is I I, I make sure I don't have like notifications or anything on during the games. And uh, that way, if something happens, I go on and there's already a, a feed of, you know, people go, oh, PD scored or great save Demco or whatever. I'm usually a, about a half a minute late to the party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's, you know, the argument could be, well, we should be paying attention to the game and not Twitter. But uh, yes, I mean, that kind of, you know, it's it's fun, you know. I've had people call me out on that before. It's like, dude, do you even watch the game or are you just like on Twitter? I'm like, I got one eye on both right now. I'm doing two things at once. Multitasking. Never thought a guy could do it, but hey, here I am. To be fair, I think there's like a vast majority of Canuck fans, media people, all that are doing the same thing, right? Yep. 
Hey, uh, lots of stuff coming up on this episode. Uh, we don't have a guest this week after having two uh, excellent guests the last couple of weeks. Um, but we are bringing in a new segment called our Three Stars of the Month, which is what a what a great name for that. Uh, we meant to do it last episode, but to be honest, we just forgot. So here we are, February 10th. Uh, we're going to recap each of us our Three Stars of the Month for January. We're going to do a bit of an Around the Room segment this week as well because it's been a while and there's been a lot that's happened in the world of hockey. So we're going to touch on that. A lot more Canucks talks uh, including uh, the new hire and a bit of stuff uh, from Abbotsford as well Um, but first before we get into all of that um, we should touch on our outro track from last week because it is Black History Month and Doug you edited the last episode and you chose a banger to start us off for the month. Yeah, I mean, I went with Al Green, who I think most people probably know or have at least heard of. And I went for the with the song Take Me to the River, which is a great song, one of my favorite songs from Al Green, and incredibly covered by the Talking Heads as well. I mean, some would argue it's as good, if not maybe even slightly better than Al Green's, but it's we're not here to talk. It's very good. It is, but we're not very here to good. talk about the Talking Heads. We're here to talk about Al Green and... You know, he's had a bit of a checkered past, but he is a guy who, at the height of his music career, essentially walked away from the mainstream music and became a preacher or a pastor. Um, And I believe he is still a pastor to this day. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he sings in his local church choir or whatnot. But, uh, yeah, he walked away from the music industry at pretty much the height of his career to follow his faith. Yeah, it's the Reverend Al Green. And uh, yes, you mentioned Checkered Past in there as well. Um, incredibly iconic voice. And like, you know, again, you know, I know a couple episodes we've talked about how Motown was a big influence to uh, both of us growing up and uh, through my my parents, especially on my dad. Um, and Al Green would come in there. And then I think like the real resurgence in the 90s with Al Green would have been in Pulp Fiction. He was on the the Pulp Fiction soundtrack as well. And that was kind of like, uh, you, you know, at that time, I I kind of shunned a lot of the Motown because I was a teenager and I was just like, I don't listen to this stuff anymore. I'm too cool for that. And then all of a sudden Pulp Fiction comes out and it's ladled with just uh, surf music and stuff like Al Green. I'm like, oh, maybe Al Green is kind of cool. And that kind of got him back into my regular rotation back then, thanks to Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I, it's funny how movies can sort of change the course of a song or give a song new life. I mean, I think of Wayne's World and Bohemian Rhapsody and how that song, you know, that movie introduced that song to a whole generation of kids that maybe heard it once or twice on their parents' record turntable or whatever. And now they're like, oh, this is cool. Um, and you bring up a good point about Al Green and Pulp Fiction. And there's been a number of kind of iconic musicians over the times that have had a song on a, a popular movie or a big movie. And it just all of a sudden now you see that song charting in the top 100 again. And it's, yeah, it's, it, it is amazing how those two mediums, the, the movie and video world and the music world some often kind of interconnect. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee in 1995 as well. Uh, Rolling Stone ranked him as the number 65 and the greatest artist of all time. Um, won a whole bunch of Grammys as well and just an uh, iconic voice. I love that you got Al Green a banger to, to get it going there, though, Doug. That's, uh, that's a pretty awesome choice. Um, also, you can follow us on Twitter. I know we've mentioned Twitter a few times, but I should probably tell people where we are. If you don't know, I'm at Pete underscore gas, and the podcast is at Canuck Speak. 
Follow me on Twitter at Doug Venn. And like Pete and I were literally just discussing, this playlist is on Spotify. It's the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. Be sure to give that a follow. Uh, Pete will be adding another funky jam to that playlist at the end of this episode. And yeah, I'm sure it'll be another banger. Al Green's a, a tough one to follow up, but it's also a good setup one. There's a lot of different ways we can go from that. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what we add to it as well. I don't have one in mind yet because it usually depends on how long we talk in the outro as to what track we're going to use. But I've got a few ideas. So let's see what happens. Doug, we uh, got this three stars of the month segment, the belated one, uh, because we just simply forgot, as we said. Um, so, Doug. I think he'll be back for an encore yet tonight. Fans haven't left. They're still here. And still the three-star selections. Let's get it going. Why don't you go first? And starting with your third star of the month, why don't you tell us who your three stars of the month are and why, and then I'll give you mine. All right, so my third star of the month, I don't think will come as a big shocker to most people. I think he's probably been the most consistent Canuck all year. Um, he played all 12 games in the month of January. And that is a person who unfortunately is missing from the Canucks lineup at the moment, Quinn Hughes. He had seven assists. He was a plus one. Not that people really care about the plus minus stat anymore. And he led all Canucks in ice time with an average ice time of 26.27 minutes per game during the month of January. Quinn Hughes is my third star for the month of January. Now, my second star is another defenseman. And I think this guy, there's a little bit of, you're hearing a little bit of trade talk about him and teams are calling and are interested in him. And honestly, he's also had a great start to the month of February. That's Luke Shen. I think Luke Shen has been uh, an incredible bright spot for the Canucks this past month and a bit. Um, he had four points in the month of January. He was a plus two, averaged about 17 minutes a game. And, I mean, he's had a couple of scraps. And, yeah, man, Luke Shen's just been a really, really solid addition to this team. And I honestly think he has been one of the better Canucks the last month, month and a half. And yeah, Luke Shen is my second star for the month of January. And my first star might be a bit of a surprise. I went a little bit in, you know, the opposite direction than what I think most people would think. But my first star, honestly, and again, you know, these are just opinions. My first star for the month of January, believe it or not, is Yuho Lamico. I think Lamico, wow. I think Lamico has played very well. He had four points in 12 games. He also, since Boos Boudreaux took over coaching duties for the Canucks, Lamico has had the best face-off winning percentage on the team with a 56.7% win rate. He has asserted himself along with Tyler Mott and Matthew Highmore as a legitimate fourth line and, frankly, a shutdown line. Lamico and his line have been getting matched up against the other team's top lines and they've been performing well since Boudreaux again took over as the Canucks head coach the Canucks I believe are in the top 10 maybe even the top eight for defensive play in the NHL uh, they're one of the better defensive teams since Boudreaux took over and I think a lot of that has to do with the play of Yuho Lamico Oh, you surprised me there. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, interesting choices, but I like them. I like that you went off uh, the board 
a bit there as well. Surprising what he said about the Canucks being uh, one of the better defensive teams because that's really since the season started, that's where we thought a lot of their weaknesses were going to be. Well, I mean, look, last night's game, since it's fresh in our minds, probably doesn't bode well for that stat. But yeah, they were... Before last night's game, they were one of the best defensive teams in the NHL since Boost Boudreaux took over. I had a few guys. I had five guys I was looking at, really, for mine. I had to trim it down to three. Um, I gave the third star of the month to Tyler Mott. Uh, He had the best plus minus on the team. Again, take that for what it's worth. But he led all forwards in penalty killing time uh, as well and was tied for third on the team in goals. He was getting it done both ways. Three goals, three assists in the 12 games. Um, And and again, you know, I'm a big Tyler Mott fan and just how he plays. Um, But he had a very solid month, I thought. And uh, Tyler Mott, again, you gave Lamico a star. I'm giving Tyler Mott a star for uh, his six-point effort. And again, just playing in all facets uh, of the game uh, as well. But um, like I said, big fan of Tyler Mott, so obviously a heavy bias there. Second star of the month. I gave to Quinn Hughes as well. So Hughes uh, appeared in mine. Uh, Hughes had seven assists in 12 games, led all defensemen on the team scoring. You mentioned how he led all players on the Canucks in average ice time uh, per game, and it wasn't even close. It was almost four minutes more than OEL, who was second. Um, but he also he led the team in even strength ice time, again, almost two minutes more than Tyler Myers. He led the team in power play ice time, a little bit more than Brock Besser as well. Uh, so getting used in a lot of different situations. And yes, he does have some penalty killing time, uh, sitting down tied for seventh on the team in that uh, for the month of January. So he has a little bit uh, a, a little bit less there, but still getting used in all facets. And uh, I've noticed Quinn Hughes uh, defensively has been a lot more sound this year. So I wanted to give him nods for that. Number one. I am I'm, I'm I'm subject to usually give it to the guy who has the most points in the month and JT Miller gets it despite missing two games in the month of January as well nine points in 10 games four goals five assists uh hey it's JT Miller we we know what he can do he's obviously the subject of a ton of trade rumors but uh he had, I thought, a very, very solid month uh, up front as well. Led all forwards in average ice time. And again, you talk about a guy who's getting used in all situations. Uh, that's certainly him. Second in even strength time. Uh, he's third on power play time. And he's right up there as well. Second in shorthanded time. So um, JT Miller, that's my number one. So, Doug, what we're going to do is throughout the year, we're going to, we're giving, we're assigning points to whoever gets uh, in our stars, goes into a little tally, and at the end of the year, we uh, are going to give our Canucks Speakeasy MVP of the year. Yeah, uh, I think we'll do three points for the first star, two points for the second star, and one point for the third star. Yeah, sure. I like it. Yeah, I think it's a fun little thing that we'll kind of track throughout the course of the year, and then I guess, you know, at the end of the season, we'll uh, tally up the score and figure out who... uh, we thought the MVP of this team was. And the way, because it spans two seasons, it could be someone who's not even on the team anymore, but that's probably not likely, but uh, it is possible. Well, hey, and we got a, you know, the pending trade deadline coming up as well. So uh, there could be some future Canucks that aren't on the team yet that uh, could be uh, cracking into the, into the running for uh, MVP of the team. Mott Miller on mine and Shen on yours. All lots of uh, trade talk surrounding 
those guys. Doug, let's start our Around the Room segment as well because there is a ton of stuff to talk about. I think you're going to want to hear this. Uh, no, I'm just playing. I'm, I'm having fun here at the hockey game. Let's start. Actually, let's start with uh, the. I want to start before we get into the NHL with uh, the biggest hockey game of the week, which I thought was the Canada USA uh, Women's Olympic game. Um, I don't know if you got to catch much of this because it's a wacky time where where you're at, Doug. Um, but uh, I got to watch this game. It was pretty solid, despite the U.S. handily outplaying Canada throughout it at times. Uh, Canada got some excellent goaltending. And we're able to come away with the victory. Always a, a big one when Canada plays the U.S. on the women's side. And I was reading this morning that it was the highest watch event so far at the Olympics in Canada by quite a bit. 1.6 million viewers tuned in to watch that game. I honestly haven't watched one second of the Olympics. <laughs> uh, I, I'm beyond excited and thrilled that Canada got the victory against the U.S., um, kind of surprised that they played this early in the tournament, although I understand it's not the knockout round yet. It's just the round robin round. But yeah, congratulations to the Canadian women for pulling up the victory in the hockey against the U.S. women because that is probably one of the better rivalries. There was actually a credit to uh, the Sportsnet guys. Last night they were actually talking about what's the best Canada-U.S. rivalry right now? Is it soccer? Is it women's hockey? Is it the men's hockey? And there was a good argument made for the women's hockey. And there was also a good argument made for women's soccer, that that one was actually yeah. right up there as well. Yeah, out of those, those would be the first four that can't come to mind right now is uh, the soccer and the hockey on both the men's and women's side. Um, but I would say just because, uh, especially on the hockey side, the way those two teams dominate, um, it's probably at least for us, and because we're Canada, I'd probably give it to the women's hockey as the best one. Um, they also, like, the thing with the women's sides is they just seem to meet more in a lot of different uh, tournaments and stuff. So there is more of a rivalry. We haven't had best on best in men's hockey for a while, so it's kind of slipped down the rankings. I would then give it to uh, women's soccer probably as number two, just again because of uh, some of the matches that they've had and some of the how closely contested they are um, and how that was a big mountain for Canada to climb to beat them. Um, probably men's hockey third if we ever get it again and then men's soccer fourth now don't get me wrong that men's soccer game uh, last month was amazing and one of the best soccer games I've seen in a long time and uh, it just needs more to really build a rivalry but yeah I'd say probably Canada US women's hockey uh, at least this side of the border is, is the big one yeah I, I tend to agree with you Pete I think what makes a good rivalry often is bad blood. And I think, you know, the fact that they have met almost for, you know, like clockwork every time in any major tournament, it's the U.S. versus Canada. And it's gone back and forth. I mean, obviously, we were all thrilled and ecstatic when the Canadian women's soccer team finally beat the U.S., but it was very much like the Slay the Dragon moment for the 2011 Canucks, where they had been constantly losing in big moments to the U.S. team, and they finally got over the hump, and they actually beat them. Um, but even then, they still weren't the favorites heading into the gold medal game. They still had to go through Sweden, which is a really good up-and-coming country when it comes to women's soccer as well. 
But that U.S.-Canada women's hockey, it's always for keeps. And anytime one of them wins, doesn't matter if it's in the round robin or the knockout or for a medal, it's always for keeps. And it's set up that uh, with the way the bracket is right now that they're more than likely going to meet again for the gold. So hopefully we get another edition of it as well. Uh, In the NHL, I guess coaches is probably where we could start. Um, It's funny. I got uh, most of my buddies. We got a we got a hockey thread going. And uh, in that in that thread, there's Canucks fans. There's Oilers fans. There's Habs fans. There's Flyers fans. And there's Jets fans. And there's a Flames fan. But those first five all had coaching changes already this year. And in the last couple of days, Habs and Oilers are the latest for it. Any surprised by those moves or should they have been done a while ago? I don't think anyone's surprised that Dominic Ducharme was let go by the Habs just because they're having one of the worst years in recent memory. I saw, I forget who it was, but someone tweeted a stat where Jacob Markstrom has as many shutouts this year as the Habs have wins. Yeah, I've tweeted a couple of different things like that, and we are going to talk about Markstrom as well, but I did a tweet as well where Travis Green has as many wins as the Habs have right now. They both have eight, and Markstrom has 11 shutouts in his two years with the Flames. He had five in over 250 games with the Canucks. Well, and again, like you said, we'll talk about Markstrom a little bit later, so I'll leave it for now. But I think the big news out of Montreal is seemingly out of nowhere, they announced Marty St. Louis as their coach, which I think is great. I mean, I I think it would have been cool if Burroughs would have got a shot uh, because I think Burroughs is a guy that is very smart. And I do think, you know, he will be a head coach at some point um, in the NHL. But I mean, Marty St. Louis seemingly out of nowhere becomes the head coach, which I think is great. I mean, I think St. Louis is a fiery guy and I've read a lot of reports from people that are close to St. Louis and know him on a personal level and said that they're not surprised that he's in coaching and that he seems like he would be a natural coach. So I'm very interested to see what kind of boost this gives the Canadians. I know they're having an abysmal season and there's a lot of reasons why, but yeah, I think the Marty St. Louis hire came as a bit of a shock, but I'm definitely intrigued. He's also got the uh, intern tag on him, and and I know him and Jeff Gordon know each other from their days with uh, the Rangers. Um, St. Louis always, I remember when he was playing, he always had a reputation of just his work ethic and how, you know, he's a shorter guy, but his legs were built like tree trunks, and we all know, you know, he's won Art Ross trophies, and they're a great player. Um, I think... Maybe there's a bit of as well uh, bringing in a French Canadian because you've hired a GM who's who's not, and uh, maybe that's that was some thought with that as well. You generally need the French Canadian head coach there, but it's an interim tag, so that's interesting too. But yeah, the Habs, man. I mean, I can't believe how bad the Habs are. I knew they were going to struggle this year with no Price and Weber, but they were in the Stanley Cup Finals, and look at them now. Well. Yeah, I mean, they have literally fallen off a cliff, fallen off a cliff. And when you lose your world-class goalie and a guy who can be nominated for the Norris every year, uh, it's going to affect your team. And we're seeing that right now. And I think guys, and you had a tweet a few weeks back, or maybe it was about a month ago, (laughs) comparing Cole Caulfield and Vasily Podkolzin. And I mean, Caulfield's having a terrible year as well. I know he's bounced back and forth between the Canadians and their AHL affiliate. Uh, guys like Toffoli, there's a lot of rumors about him getting traded. Jeff Petrie, 
it seems like that Montreal is ready to tear everything down and start a full-on rebuild. They do got some young pieces in play, like a Caulfield, like a Suzuki, but they definitely need to get younger and they need to start looking for the future. And I don't think anybody heading into the beginning of this year would have thought that the Arizona Coyotes would have a better record with guys like Jay Beagle, Louis Erickson, and um, French-Canadian guy, I can't think of his name now. Or no, he's a friend, uh, Roussel, uh, playing for them, um, would have a better record than the Montreal Canadiens. They're five points behind the Coyotes for dead last in the league and 11 points behind Seattle for the number 30 spot in the lead and 12 behind the Buffalo Sabres. So it is ugly in Montreal, uh, minus 79 goal differential as well. Um, Oilers, uh, interest, they kind of being like a tale of two seasons and they've only played 44 games. Uh, they got off to a really hot start. They look legit. I know I was giving them some praise early in the year. I was like, Hey, maybe the Oilers have figured this out a bit. They got scoring depth. They seemed to get some, uh, they were, they had hot goaltending at the start of the year. Goaltending has completely fallen off for the Oilers. Um, Tippett's gone now. What happens in Edmonton? I mean, they need a goalie, right? They've needed a goalie for years. And I mean, the only reason the Canucks, you could argue have been fairly competitive this year is because of Demko. Um, and the Oilers had, you know, the corpse of Mike Smith, who's what, like, he's the Tom Brady, essentially, but without the success of NHL goalies, what is he? He's got to be pushing 40, I would imagine. Uh, and then they got uh, Koskinen, who was signed to that terrible deal by Peter Shirelli. I think he's making more or as much as Demko or just below what Demko is making on like a four-year deal or something like that. Yeah, Edmonton, he's uh, four and a half million, 33 years old, Miko Koskin, and he's in the last year of a deal that's given him four and a half million. And uh, yeah, Mike Smith, um, he's got another year after this at 2.2, and he is 39 right now. Yeah, and, and that's one of, the, I mean, they do have other issues. They don't really have depth uh, outside of their top line. But their biggest issue is their goaltending, and it's been that way for years. I mean, there's a lot of teams. I think of the Philadelphia Flyers, of, and it seemed like they got their guy in Carter Hart. But the last couple of years, his confidence has totally been blown out. But when you see these teams that on paper you think, oh, man, like they should be able to make some noise in the NHL, and they don't, it's often because of goaltending. I mean, I give credit to Calgary, right? And again, foreshadowing for what we're going to talk about a little bit later. Jacob Markstrom. I mean, you know, I still think it was a bit of an overpayment personally, but I mean, Markstrom solidified their goaltending and Calgary looks like a legitimate team to come out of the West. I don't think they're going to do it, but you know, they've got guys stepping up this year. Goudreau's having one of the best years he's ever had. Oliver Shillington's now arrived as, as like a top, like a dominant top four player for them. And Edmonton is still, you know, waffling with the best player in the world because they can't shore up their goaltending. Maybe the the two best players in the world. Yeah, they got to get a goalie. They got to figure out what's up. But let's talk about Markstrom. I mean, this is a, a guy who... Uh, in this city, I think everyone agreed it was still the right decision to let him go. But he left town really just entering his peak. And, uh, you know, I mentioned how many shutouts he had. He has eight already this year, which is incredible. Calgary's got a good blue line in front of him, though, uh, which obviously helps a lot. Uh, but, geez, Markstrom, 
Uh, again, like this is only year two of uh, the six-year deal, but Flames so far are getting their money's worth out of that deal. I, I don't, I still don't think it'll necessarily age well, but I mean, Markstrom just keeps on getting better and better. So uh, who knows? Well, you know what's crazy? You talked about Markstrom's shutouts this year. He's got eight, leads all goalies in the NHL, has more shutouts or as many shutouts as the Habs have wins this year. But I remember a time when. Markstrom was a Canuck and he had never gotten a shutout in the NHL. And it was a big deal. I think he'd wait. It was like, I think he'd played like 150 games in the NHL and never got a shutout. And then finally he got a shutout. His first career shutout with the, in the NHL was with the Canucks. And it was kind of a big moment. I know even Markstrom kind of chuckled about it, you know, and he like, wasn't something he really worried about or thought of, but it's just nice to get, kind of get the proverbial monkey off his back. And now you look at him. And he's an absolute shutout machine. And I think you bring up a really good point. He's got a great defense in front of him. I mean, and kudos to Chris Tanev as well. Tanev is, ever since he signed with the Calgary Flames, he has been arguably one of their best defensemen, if not their best defensemen. I also think Tanev was a reason why the Flames, even though I don't think they wanted to do it, but I thought I feel like they were a lot more comfortable to be able to expose a guy like Giordano in the expansion draft because they had a guy like Tanev step in and fill a lot of the things that Giordano can do. I mean, obviously he's not the same offensively, but Tanev is a leader. And I think we saw the lack of him in the Canucks dressing room last year and how it affected the team. And you can argue that it might've even affected the team this year. And he's had a positive impact on the Calgary flames. And obviously Mark Strum and him are tight as well. And you're seeing the fruits of their labor in Calgary. I wouldn't rule out a return of Giordano to Calgary as well. I know I, I believe he's UFA at the end of this year, so Seattle will more than likely trade him. I wouldn't rule that out entirely. Uh, Markstrom came into the league in the 2010-11 season. He only played one game. Um, and then over the course of four seasons in Florida, he played a total of 43 games. He joined the Canucks in 2013 14. He didn't get his first shutout in the NHL until the 2017-18 season. This is a guy who came into the league in 2010-11, again, just with one game. But it took him until his, what is that, his fifth season playing in Vancouver? Yeah, his fifth season playing in Vancouver. Now, granted, in his fifth season, he got 60 games in. Uh, same with the season after. Up to that point, he'd never played more than 32 in a season. So more games, more opportunities to get the shutout. But still... Flip that around. He's played 34 in Calgary this year. He's got eight. That's almost one in every four games he's getting a shutout. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. How many games was it? Do you have the stat in front of you, Pete? How many games he played before he finally got that shutout? I, I threw out a random number no. of 150. I I don't know exactly. Okay. I mean, I could do some quick uh, addition here. Um, it's at least 100 games, though. Um, but I do know, I tweeted about it last night. I believe he had five in 257 games with the Canucks. He has 11 in 88 uh, with the, the Calgary Flames. Um, That's crazy. So That's he, almost a, a shutout every eight games. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, And I mean, those numbers may be off one or two. That You get the idea is that he's already put more than double in in his two seasons in Calgary than the rest of his pro career uh again that, that's not necessarily sustainable but he's going to be in the Vesna running 925 save percentage 213 goals against look I I don't like the flames obviously I don't like anyone in our division really I don't like any other team in the league um Islanders have been as you know my second favorite team but that's a distant second um but 
I, I, I can't not cheer for Jacob Markstrom. I mean, I like the guy um, and uh, it's, it's nice to see him having success. And again, in Vancouver, I, you don't hear, you know, when Toffoli left, there's a lot of people who said uh, that Toffoli was a guy that we shouldn't let go. And that's another name that I've heard tied to Calgary a lot lately is Tyler Toffoli. Um, but no one was really saying, oh, we should have backed that. We should have done that a six-year, $36 million deal for Jacob Markstrom. It just didn't make sense with uh, Thatcher Demko obviously being ready to play. Yeah, and Demko is far younger, and I mean, we see we've seen how well Demko's played this year, and you know, I, maybe one or two games this year, Demko's had a bad game. Outside of that, I mean, he's been the Canucks' best player and the most consistent player from game one to whatever game we're at now, game forty or whatever it is. Um, so they absolutely made the right decision, but like you said, it's hard not to cheer for a guy like Markstrom. I know he's always a big supporter of the LGBT. TQ community as well and um, yeah he's just a genuinely good dude and I know he was a highly highly touted prospect for years and it seemed like he was going to be a bust I mean he was even put on waivers by Jim Benning and he cleared waivers one uh, after one training camp and yeah it's nice to see him finally hit his stride and you know become the player that I think a lot of people thought he would be eventually sticking on the subject of goalies Tuka Rask officially retires, 34 years old, had a whole bunch of injuries, just wasn't able to recover, tried to come back this year, got in a handful of games, wasn't himself, said he's done. Um, Obviously in Boston, which is a city that we also don't seem to like very much in here in Vancouver (laughs) for obvious reasons, uh, the guy... Wasn't a Bruins draft pick, if you remember. Uh, the reason that he ended up there was uh, was a, also another former Canuck was involved with that, and Andrew Raycroft, when Toronto had those two stud young prospects and Justin Pogge and uh, Tuka Rask, and they decided to, well, they ended up trading both of them, but uh, Rask for Raycroft was the deal. Uh, he ended up playing his entire pro career, 564 games with the Boston Bruins. Some people have been saying he's a Hall of Fame goalie. I don't think he is a Hall of Fame goalie myself, but he's certainly a guy that is much beloved in Boston and may get his number retired over there. Yeah, it's. I know he was struggling and he had some injuries and like, was it was it the year in the bubble he kind of walked away from the team, wasn't it? I think he, yeah. he left the team for personal issues. or they, It was never clear whether it was injury-related or personal issues or a mixture of both. I know he hasn't played this year, but definitely seems like a bit of a shock to me. Like I didn't really see this coming. I know you had said that they had been talk about it the night before that you know, it looked like he was probably going to announce his retirement. But yeah, I'm still shocked. He's only 34 years old. He's been one of the top goalies in the league when he's played. I know he's on one of the better teams in the NHL too, so that definitely helps. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to miss Tuka Raska. I've always liked him as a goalie. I, like you said, I do remember that he was a Toronto Maple Leafs draft pick and the Leafs wanting to hold on to that good Canadian boy and Justin Pogge decided to part ways with Tuka Rask, and I'm sure they regret that to this day. But uh, yeah, man, I, I get it, Tuka. If uh, the body's worn down and you can't do it anymore... Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta hang him up and, you know, uh, congratulations to you on a great career and hopefully your body will recover and you'll be able to live a long and healthy life. 
Yeah, tough recovery from hip surgery. Uh, he also did win a Vesna trophy um, and over 300 wins. So uh, good on him. Uh, seemed like a good dude. But uh, uh, again, that's you, your hips aren't working here for a goalie in this league. Uh, his numbers this year shown it as well. Um, it seems like the right move, and I'm sure he's got enough money in the bank to to sit back for a little while. Hey, last thing I wanted to touch on in this busy around the room segment, um, and I know we've talked about it a little bit before, but it's official as of today is the Arizona Coyotes agreeing to a three-year deal to play at Arizona State University in their facility there uh apparently it's 5,000 person but it's only going to be about 3,500 for NHL games uh there's been some owners and players who have been rumbling not on the record officially but just that through here through other people uh that they aren't too happy with this because obviously with COVID and everything else and hockey related revenues being a 50-50 split this affects everyone uh, across the board I, I mean the NHL and Batman have just dug their heels in on Phoenix for so long. And uh, I just wanted to go on a little bit of a ramble here about this. So the, the Phoenix metro area is, is big. It's the 14th largest in the States. Now, the NHL wants to get into big markets, right? They tried in Atlanta. Atlanta was the ninth largest twice. That hasn't worked. Seattle is number 15. They've gotten in there. But really, the success for me in the expansion era lies in Vegas, San Jose, and Nashville, who are the 30th, 31st, and 38th largest markets in the U.S. Now, the NBA has never really been one to go with like, hey, we need to get the biggest market. The NBA has gone for unique markets. And I know I've mentioned this before, but they're the only show in Orlando, the only show in Salt Lake City, Oklahoma City, uh, Sacramento, Portland. Um, you know, that's just off the top of my head. I'm, I know there are others out there. Um but they went that route, and they're very successful. So the NHL is really digging down on, on being in Phoenix. I mean, Houston is the logical choice, which is the sixth largest market uh, to move the team to. But what do you think about this? Like, this is a very weird look for the NHL to now have a professional sports team playing in front of 3,500 fans at a university. Well, I also thought it was funny because I saw, like, the – I guess the team account for the Arizona Coyotes tweeted it out as in like, great news. We just signed yeah. a, a deal with the university to to play our games there. And it's just like, dude, like people have already been talking about how bad of a look this is for the league. And you bring up a really great point, Pete, in regards to the owners and just shared revenue across the entire league. This hurts everybody's bottom line. And with COVID still being an issue and st still being a thing and revenues already being really, really tight for a lot of teams, this impacts it even far worse. I'm surprised that the owners are not like, I mean, maybe they are behind closed doors, who knows, but I'm surprised that you're not hearing more owners be a lot more vocal about this publicly and putting pressure on Batman and the NHL brass to be like, hey, this is unacceptable. We're a professional sports league, and we have teams in the AHL that can house more fans than an NHL team. It's a weird one, man. I mean, the thing as well, just to kind of uh, you know not beat this this to death, is uh, so they're working on plans to build a, an arena in Tempe now. I've spent a lot of time kind of looking at Phoenix on the map and trying to get. I've never been to Phoenix. I've been to Arizona, but I didn't go to Phoenix. Um, and 
just looking at the distances and how it all works. There's downtown, and then there's like Scottsdale to the north, and there's Glendale to the northwest, and Tempe is to the southeast, and it looks closer to town. But there's again, given the track record, do we? Does anyone really believe, first of all, that this arena is going to get built, and secondly, that it's going to be successful with uh, the Coyotes playing there? I, I don't. I mean, the argument can be made success, right? One of the reasons why Vegas has been so successful is because the team's been good. The Coyotes have never been good. And the problem with the Coyotes, and I get it, it's smart up to a point, but they're the team that's always taking on other teams' bad contracts for assets. Um, The problem is they never really turn those assets into anything significant. Their biggest asset now, and a great player who's still young and not even hit his prime yet, in my opinion, Jacob Chikorin, is apparently on the trading block. You look at a guy like Connor Garland, who is a good young asset. They weren't having any negotiations with in terms of re-signing him last year, hence why he got traded in the offseason to the Canucks. For whatever reason, even when they get good young players, they end up trading them. I know Clayton Keller's having a resurgence year this year, which is great to see. I always like Clayton Keller. But they're arguably their best player is Jacob Chikorin, and they're trying to trade him out of town. It just doesn't make sense. So it's a combination of the team not winning and not being good and then poor decision-making from whoever's running that organization, whether it's the GM, the owner, the team president, whoever it is. They just make poor decision after poor decision, and they're not able to ice a team that people want to go out and see. And I think that's why attendance is one of the reasons why attendance has been so bad. And I think they've alienated the fan base there. The fan base has no loyalty or no trust in the team ever turning it around. So at this point, I don't think it matters. I think you have to pack your bags, move somewhere else, start fresh. I will say that what they're doing, and I know I've mentioned this before, reminds me a lot of what the Raiders did before they went to Vegas, which is try and acquire all these young players and picks so that by the time you get into your new stadium in three years, if it's uh, or new arena in this case, assuming it gets built, you have all these guys, again, like I said, nine picks currently in the first three rounds uh, this year in a deep draft. You have all these young guys who should be ready to make the team by then. But in the meantime, you're doing this Band-Aid option, playing in a university arena, 3,500 people, um, and you do risk losing any momentum that you have, even if uh, you're, you're able to ice a really good product if this new arena is built. So we'll see what happens there. But, Doug, let's talk. Uh, let's talk about you know, the, the important club, uh, the Canucks, uh, the big news around the team yesterday was Cami Granado being the latest to join the Canucks head office. We knew that there was another assistant GM coming in. Uh, I was a little surprised it was Cami Granado, uh, just because uh, obviously she was working with the Seattle Kraken. Uh, she has ties to the area, obviously lives here. Um, I know a couple of guys have said that they've seen her at a lot of games, both in Abbotsford and Vancouver before this. Uh, she's obviously very knowledgeable and very well respected in the industry. Um, but, you know, it, I mean, the obvious thing here is all of a sudden the Canucks have two as female assistant GMs. This is a very different feel to this front office from what we've been used to in the Jim and John era. Night and day. Like, it just blows my mind that three months ago, we were still living the Jim and John era. And it was just such, it felt so close-minded and like an inner circle 
And even the people that work for the organization seem to be shut out of being able to voice their opinions. And now you're just seeing the doors wide open. And, you know, kudos to Jim Rutherford. I mean, he's really, you know, targeted and established a different culture in the management group in Vancouver since he came in. And it's great to see. There's an argument to be made, and I, I don't even want to say it's an argument, but Cami Granado might be the most influential female hockey player of all time. I'm not going to say that she's necessarily the greatest hockey, female hockey player of all time, but she's probably the most influential. And she's probably the one that broke the gender barrier more so for young women to want to play hockey, to see a superstar like Cami do the things that she was doing. Um, and I think it's an absolute home run for the Canucks to have her come aboard and become an assistant GM, joining the likes of uh, Cast on Gay and um, who was the other AGM? Derek Clancy. Derek Clancy and obviously Patrick Alvin as the general manager. I think the Canucks have done a great job. And I mean, Rachel Dory as well, you know, who's heading the analytics department. Obviously, this is a step up for Cam. Cammy from what she was doing in Seattle. I mean, Seattle, she just had the title of scout and now she's an AGM. Um, and you can tell just the way she talks and, you know, the way she thinks and loves the game that she's a hard worker. And I think she's very excited to start working for the organization and, you know, get some ideas together. And yeah, man, I'm, I'm really, really interested to see how much of a change this team will have from this time next year to today. Don't forget uh, the promotion for Stan's, Stan Smeal. Uh, Ryan Johnson is more involved with the organization after doing some great work with Abbotsford and being in charge of the cap. And, of course, you still have the twins in there, too. So the remnants, the remnants, I shouldn't say remnants. That sounds like they're leftovers. But what is left from that old regime um, are some strong parts and some parts, at least in the Sedin's case, we still don't really know what we have there, but they're very good hockey minds. And you're now surrounding them with a very diverse group of hockey minds, which, uh, I mean, the Sedin's were outside the box thinkers on the ice. So I certainly see them being outside the box thinkers off the ice as well. But you're now in a room with a lot of different people coming from different backgrounds from, uh, you got a couple people in there with pro scouting backgrounds. Um, I know Alvin Clancy and Granado all certainly are that case. Casting Gay comes with more of an agent in CBA background. Um, you have the steamer who's been around the organization his whole life, so he probably knows where everything is. You need to get more coffee filters or paper clips. He's probably the guy to point you to the right cupboard even. You know, he just knows everything about the uh, about the team. Uh, Ryan Johnson, of course, is your connection with Abbotsford and what's going on there as well. So I think there's a it's it's a very well-rounded team, and they're all starting to arrive in Vancouver now. You're finally starting to get to it, which is good because we are, what, like five, six weeks away now from the trade deadline. And obviously, this team has some really tough decisions to make on a lot of fronts. And, I mean, we know that this team, what is it, like an 8% chance running uh, by the Athletics uh, numbers uh, to make the playoffs, which is fair considering they played a lot more games than other teams. And they're still, after all this, they're still in seventh. Remember when they hired Boudreaux? They were in seventh. They're still in seventh, which just tells you how big a hole that they dug themselves into. But you're now getting this point where it's like, okay, I mean, Rutherford is has a history of trades. They call him Trader Jim for a reason. Uh, and this is now going to be really interesting to kind of watch here is like what, what do they do, who stays, who do they go, how do they navigate 
the JT Miller situation? How do they navigate Brock Besser? Do you really move a guy like a Luke Shen or a Kyle Burroughs who, for a depth piece, have a lot of value right now? And I think this is now where it starts to, around the league, There's a lot of people are going to start watching and calling the Canucks. I know uh, the guys on the Canucks conversation, Quadrelli and Faber, have been saying that there's a lot more people up in in the press box these days and uh there's a lot of talk the canucks are really ripe to be sellers if they want to be but it's just a question of what pieces do you move and should you be a seller yeah and i think that's why having more voices in the room which is something you and i have talked about for the last year and a half two years ever yeah exactly and you know that's what jim rutherford and this management group has got they've got a whole bunch of voices new fresh outside the box thinkers in the room now, you know, and I I like, look, I'm like 50, 50 split on this, right? Part of me is like, I want to see a trade. Come on. I want to see a trade. But the other part of me is like, Hey, I like that Rutherford and Elvine and the rest of the management group are being patient and they're not just making the trade for the sake of making a trade. I, I like that. Right. And they're probably wanting to, you know, round up the rest of their management group, which it seems like they have now with the Cami Granato hire. And you mentioned earlier, Pete, that, you know, they're all starting to arrive in Vancouver. Emily Castonguay, I believe, arrived this week. Uh, Patrick Alvine arrived last week. Cami Granato, like you said, lives in Vancouver, so she's probably here now. But the fact that they're all getting to meet and they're getting to kind of talk and go through this team and evaluate the team from top to bottom, look at contracts, look at you know future assets that are currently in the organization and the lack thereof. Outside of a prospect, you know, Aiden McDonough, he's probably the most exciting prospect, I think. And Jack Rathbone, I'll, I'll still mention Rathbone as a prospect. But outside of like prospects in the Canucks organization that aren't playing in a professional league because the AHL is still a professional league. The only guy that I think most Canuck fans are somewhat excited about is Aiden McDonough. Outside of that, I can't think of another prospect out there. Can you, Pete, that's not playing in professional hockey right now? I mean, there's there's guys in Europe, but none of them are really, you know, they're 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 like we're not even like second tier prospects. There are a lot of more like third tier prospects. Like the odds of any of the guys we have under contract in Europe making uh, the team is is very low. And I mean, even Aiden McDonough, who is a late round pick, uh, he's been playing great in, in Northeastern. He's he's uh, he's a long shot as well, but I think he's got more of a shot than anyone else you mentioned outside of Abbotsford. I mean, Abbotsford, you also got Will Lockwood, Danila Klimovich, and Jet Wu. But let's not kid ourselves. The uh, the prospect cupboard is bare, and we're up against the cap. And I know Rutherford has talked about those two things a lot as well, which is nice to hear. Um, but those are two things that the Canucks really need to figure out. And there's so many different ways... You can go. I know we talked about this uh, a lot uh, last episode, and this is kind of coming on the heels of two very different games. Like outside of like the Canucks got it was a weird game against the Islanders. Uh, Some of those goals, they were bad goals and you can blame Halak. You can blame the team. I know people were very quick to blame Tyler Myers on one of them, Um, but they the Canucks after that were probably the better team uh, through the second and the third period. Um, and, and, you know, against the Coyotes, they they looked all flash. I mean, was, you looked at the score sheet. It was everything you wanted. But, I mean, realistically, realistically, I mean, geez, I would love the Canucks to make the playoffs. I always want them to, but, I mean, realistically, they're not, right? I mean, it's it's such an uphill battle. So 
what are you doing now? What do you do with this team is, is okay, you've got your, your core group of guys. You need to align whatever you're doing in with those guys. And that doesn't mean you can't have guys who are older or younger, but you're kind of looking in that 23 to 26 window right now is the guys that you're going to be building your team around, which for me means if that's what you're doing and you need to create cap space and you need to restock the cupboards, again, Florida is a team that I've said is being able to do this pretty well on the fly is do uh, you take your young guys, you say, hey, this is who we're building around. We're building around Barkov, Huberdo, Ekblad, and we're going to use these guys and, and foundation around them. And sorry, we got to jettison guys like Hoffman and, and Dadnoff and whoever else to do that. But they were able to do that and remain competitive. Now, the Canucks have a couple guys in Hoglander and Pod Colson um, who are coming up who could fill some spots on the wings. I think they've uh, looked good the last couple games, but they're still there. You know, I don't think either one of them is necessarily a first liner. But there's anyone for me outside of that right now, yeah, you're taking calls on. I know Tyler Myers was a guy that we thought was once unmovable. I would move Tyler Myers just for the cap space. I know, yeah, that leaves a hole on the right side, but this is, again, like, if you can get enough cap space off the book as well, then you don't have to worry too much about that uh, Halak uh, uh, penalty. Well, not penalty, the Halak bonuses, sorry, I should say, that goes over to next year too. But, I mean, the Canucks should be listening to calls on just about anybody right now. But who do you think, like, is there anyone right now that you're just thinking is is going to get moved 100%? Like Tyler Mott's UFA, is he going to get moved? Yeah, I think Tyler Mott's a guy that definitely will probably end up getting moved just because, like you said, he is a UFA. And the, this team's trying to clear cap space. But even moving a guy like Mott, that doesn't really fill up or free up, pardon me, a lot of cap space for next year because he was off the books at the end of this year anyways. I think when Rutherford's talking about freeing up cap space, he's talking long term. So you're looking at a guy like JT Miller, who still has another year under contract. You're looking at a potential Brock Besser or, you know, Tanner Pearson. If you can move a guy like Tanner Pearson, I believe Tanner Pearson still has two years left after at the end of this year. Uh, you brought up Tyler Myers. These are all guys that I think you're looking to move if you can get assets back. I mean, Miller seems like obviously the guy, and we've talked about it at nauseum, as has everybody, that you could probably get the most assets back in a trade. But I think that's what the team is, is you don't want to be a team missing the playoffs, up against the cap, and have no prospects on the way up. And that's exactly where we are right now as a franchise. So I respect the fact that they're taking their time to evaluate everything. Apparently, I don't know if you saw this, Pete, but apparently there was a, a legitimate offer made by the New York Rangers for Tyler Myers. The only names that are I heard was uh, Kratzov and a first. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there was a third piece involved or not. And Rutherford apparently said that, you know, they were going to sit on it um, and they were going to ask around the league if anyone else could, you know, top that offer kind of thing. So I, I, di- I do think they will make a move at some point and it'll probably be closer to the deadline or it'll be a team trying to get ahead of some of the bigger buyers and jump early because we always see that, right? Every year there's always a big trade a week or two before the actual trade deadline that ends up happening yeah. and it's just a team that not many people saw as being big buyers and they decided to just pounce early and get the piece that they felt like they were missing for the playoff run. Yeah, the last couple of years, uh, the trade deadline show, a lot of the names have gone off the boards in the week to 10 days um, before that. Um, 
what do you what do you think about Connor Garland? His name has come up. Uh, for me, Garland doesn't fall into that window. Um, I don't think there's any urgency to trade uh, a guy like Connor Garland myself. But what do you think? I don't think there's any urgency to trade him. But he's making what five point two five million, and uh, he's signed four for four nine years. Five. Four. Okay, so five. Let's call it five million. Yeah, essentially. But you know. And he signed to a really friendly deal for the next four years, I believe. Maybe there's three years left at the end of this year. Four years left. So it was a five-year deal. Um, so I think that's the thing is you can get a good return for a player like Connor Garland. He's cost-controlled for the next four years. And you're adding assets to the team while cutting essentially $5 million off your cap. I mean, I don't want to trade Garland. I like Garland, and I think he's a guy, especially come playoff time, I think he's a guy that he's got that little bit of an edge to him, kind of like in Alex Burrows in a way. You know, he plays kind of on the edge, and he gets under other teams' skins, which I love. He's got more skill, I think, natural skill and skating ability than Alex Burrows did. But he's a guy I, I think I would love to see in a playoff series for the Canucks. I think he, you know, I think this team could be a legitimate playoff team in the next two years. And it'd be a shame to not get to see Connor Garland help this team try to win a couple of playoff series. But, you know, you've got to make tough decisions. And that's exactly what's happening right now with the management group in Vancouver. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I think, I feel like this fan base is waiting for, things to happen i mean okay justin dowling was placed on waivers today but you know i don't expect him to get picked up but i this everyone is just waiting i think for that domino i mean if it was jt miller that that really sends the message i do think that uh and i know i've mentioned this before but i'm sure that ownership wants to talk to some of the the guys that they consider the core players uh hughes Pedersen, horvat demko if they are going to make some moves and say, hey, just so you know, this is our plan and this is what we have to do. I mean, the players aren't dummies. They they know everyone's salaries and everything else just as much as anyone. They know that the Canucks have, I think, the 28th ranked prospect system right now and no second round pick coming up in a, in a pretty good draft year. I mean, they know that. But if if this new group can say, hey, yeah, we're going to trade our best player who's not a goalie, but we're doing it and this is why or Hey, we're going to trade these pieces, and we we got to do it, and this is why. I think that the guys could get behind it if, and again, this goes back to the old regime where there was not a lot of communication. Uh, I've been impressed with the communication from this new regime, and uh, whatever direction they go, you know, trades are going to happen. The, the language is there; it's like they're preparing. But man, this fan base. Uh, We've, we've all been kind of, you know, relatively restrained for a while. Ever since uh, the house cleaning, I think everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. It's going to be really interesting to see what sort of reception uh, the Canucks get if they make a big move, like if they trade a Miller or a Besser, because it's going to be very polarizing out there, and you're going to start seeing uh, the, the splits again out there and the arguments again, because everyone's been getting along fairly well right now as the team's played better, and we've it just, you know, everyone loves Bruce Boudreau, and we're just kind of waiting to see what happens here. Well, and also, you know, for the fans and the players that might be upset if they see a, a big player get traded like uh, JT Miller, it's like, well, currently... And what we have and what we're icing isn't doing the job. It isn't getting the wins. We're not in a playoff position. The chances of us making the playoffs are slim to none. So clearly something has to change, you know, and we're looking for the future, but we're not looking for five years down the road. I think this team's looking for two, three years down the road. And I think there was a quote from Rutherford saying that 
they were looking for players in the 20 to, I believe, 24 age bracket. Those were going to be some of the players that were going to be targeting, or maybe it was 20 to 23 year age bracket. But those were the, some of the players that they would be targeting in re- possible returns and trades outside of draft picks, of course. And it makes sense because, you know, that's kind of the same age as a PD, a Hughes, a Demko, uh, you know, Horvat's a little bit or older, but, you know, I, I think of Pod Colson and Hoglander. That's kind of the age demo that you're looking for. And this team needs to improve. What they're doing now is not working. Yeah, even though it has improved, right? Uh, at least even just at nothing else, the culture, you're seeing uh, PD seems to be back in form. But um, again, like, I mean, I would love for the team to make the playoffs. I always cheer for them to win. I, I don't want them to lose. But the fact that we're... Uh, this far along into the Boudreaux era and we're still seventh just shows it's like it's not really realistic when everyone has games in hand to expect the playoffs. And again, if the trade deadline passes and the Canucks don't make moves, this is something we've been extremely critical of the last regime for is letting assets walk. And that would not be a good look for this team either. So they're, again, I, I, I'm glad they're taking time. I'm not. They're glad they're not just rushing in and saying like, wow, look at this. We got this great deal. Let's do this or let's do that. I'm glad that they're waiting, getting everyone together. That They have time. They do have time. They still have realistically at least another month before they got to pull the trigger on any move. And again, the team can keep going along, doing their thing showcase guys i always worry about a guy getting injured but it's interesting with how well that they've been playing that you hear guys like luke shen and kyle burrows attracting interest and i always wonder as well if there's a guy like that maybe the canucks aren't as willing to move maybe they could say yeah you know sure you want luke shen sure but you're also gonna have to take jason dickinson and we'll take less of a return to to do that you know like talk about freeing up cap space but um i mean a guy like luke shen with the way he's playing and the contract he's on right now i mean luke shen the player is probably around the trade deadline would normally worth like a fourth or a fifth but honestly with the way he's playing and uh, the way his contract is that guy is probably you know worth a third maybe if you're lucky a a second uh, honestly and I know that maybe some people say oh that's Homer glasses but if you've watched Luke Shen play and the fact that he's under contract next year for 850,000 as well a right side defenseman that's a guy that you could there may be a team that's finally just says you know what we want him as our number six right side pairing uh for the playoff run we'll give up a second for him I mean, there's a reason why I named Luke Shen my second star of the month of January. And there's actually a lot of rumors that the Leafs are very interested in reacquiring Luke Shen. Yeah, I've seen I don't, that. I don't know if they would overpay to get him back. I mean, I, obviously, you know, I think there's a lot of Leafs fans that really did like Luke Shen. And, you know, unfortunately, he did just kind of fall off a cliff with his play there. There was a lot of pressure, unfair pressure, I think, on him as well, playing in Toronto at such a young age. And I think Brian Burke announced he would be the future captain of the Leafs. Which obviously never ended up coming to to fruition. High draft pick, high draft pick as well. Yeah, I think he was the fourth or fifth overall pick, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I think he was fifth overall. But yeah, I mean, he he I he. It makes sense that teams would be very interested in Luke Shen. He's had a resurgence this year, and I know he played a little bit last year in the playoffs due to injuries for Tampa Bay as well. But he's really had a resurgence this year, and I I think there's a lot of teams that have been scouting the Canucks because it looks like they could be one of the bigger sellers at this deadline and guys like Shannon Burroughs have stuck out to them yeah for sure and, and before we get into the free pour here um, just talk about a little bit of on ice play that we've seen the last couple of games um, it's great to see Petey back and and shooting um, and he's starting to look like his old self again that's been really nice to see 
Yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest thing with Petey, and it's just he looks like he's having fun again. There was just times throughout this season when he would score a goal and he just looked miserable after scoring a goal. And I'm not saying he has to like celebrate like Ovechkin does every time he scores a goal, but he looks like he's enjoying himself again. He's enjoying playing hockey. And that was one of the things that was worrying me about Petey this year is he just didn't look like he was enjoying playing the game of hockey anymore. And thankfully the last couple of weeks, it looks like he's kind of got that passion back. Yeah, agreed. He's been uh, he's been playing very well lately. It's it's nice to see uh, PD getting back in there. OEL uh, last couple games as well with no Quinn Hughes uh, stepping in to the PP one spot. Uh, ice time is up, obviously. I, I mean, again, ugly contract on his case, but he's got five points in the last couple games. Um, he's been playing really well as well. Yeah, he has definitely stepped up. I think since. Uh, Quinn Hughes has gone into protocol. He's probably been the best Canucks defenseman. I know a lot of people were worried about the Canucks just being able to kind of like tread water with Hughes not being in the lineup, but uh, kudos to OEL because he's played really well in Quinn Hughes' absence. And I mean, you know, it's not just the points he's generating. He's played very well defensively as well, but it's very nice to see uh, the back end starting to generate some points outside of Quinn Hughes. And I just wanted to mention a couple of wingers as well. I know we talked about Connor Garland. I thought he's been really strong the last couple of games, skating really hard. I know he was obviously on a mission against Arizona, his former team. Uh, Tanner Pearson is also, I think, being pretty solid. Not putting up a ton of points, but I've really noticed his skating. Uh, he, I feel like Tanner Pearson's a bit faster right now. Um, so I just wanted to give him a mention because uh, I know he's he, he hasn't put up a ton of points lately, but uh, I thought he's actually been playing pretty well. And again, you know, he could be the type of guy... I know we've mentioned it before, but Rutherford's traded him once. Uh, he's the reason uh, he landed here. Um, but that could be another guy that teams look at as a depth piece. And again, not a bad contract either. But I just, uh, regardless, um, I think Pearson has played pretty well uh, the last little while. Yeah. Uh, again, I've been mostly listening to the games via the radio since I've been in Toronto. So I haven't really seen too many. I've seen maybe a handful of games since I've been out here, but the games I have seen, you know, I agree. Pearson has been a little bit more noticeable than games past, and it's nice because Green, for whatever reason, it was Pearson and Horvat. That line was always going to be together, and then, you know, obviously since Boudreaux's come in, he's shuffled things around a lot more, and Pearson's kind of bounced up and down the lineup. I believe he was playing last night with Besser and Miller, I believe. At least for a little while, he was. And it's nice to see. And, I, you know, maybe he's a guy that the Canucks can get a couple assets back or even just getting rid of that contract is an asset in my mind. Yep, you need uh, you need cap space right now. Doug, let's uh, let's take it into the free pour. All right, it's that time of the episode for the free pour open floor segment. And I wanted to talk a little NBA. Uh, We've been talking about trade speculation with the Canucks and all that stuff. Well, today was the NBA trade deadline. And there was a blockbuster deal that went down between the New Jersey Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers. James Harden went essentially to the 76ers for the much maligned Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and I believe two unprotected first round picks. And yeah, I mean, it was nice to see a trade of that magnitude happen at a trade deadline. I know the NFL trade deadline is always a bust. 
And the NHL one, as you alluded to earlier in this episode, Pete, often is a bust. It was nice to see a trade deadline with a trade of that kind of magnitude. I know CJ McCollum also got traded from the Portland Trail Blazers a couple of days ago. So there was a couple of relatively big trades leading up to the official deadline, which was today. But yeah, kudos to the NBA having an actual eventful trade deadline today. And Christoph Porzingis also got moved. But yeah, that was a huge trade. I saw that. I was like, whoa, look at that. that NBA is good for that. Just massive, uh, massive trades when they happen. Because again, s- smaller teams as well. That helps, right? Yeah, and the NBA is also the classic league where there'll be a three-team trade, right? You don't really see that in other sports too often, but the NBA, like, it's a staple. You get the three-team trade. Um, it's something I, I think it's happened maybe a handful of times in hockey and maybe a handful of times in baseball, if that. Um, but, yeah, uh, it was nice to see. Well, there was a four-team trade today in the NBA as well, so uh, that's certainly... Uh, their thing. Hey, I wanted to also talk a little bit about sports, and I know Doug, you said that uh, you haven't watched any of the Olympics. Well, after a slow start with me, I've kind of gotten the groove now of watching the Olympics. Um, it's uh, more my late night TV watching, but a couple of things in particular that I, I just wanted to mention. Um, when I was watching the ski jumping the other day, uh, and, and I've actually seen some things online since this, I was like, are they doing a ski jump at a nuclear power plant? But apparently... <laughs> Those uh, it, and you see the footage of it, Doug. You should go and take a look at this. I've but, seen it. I've yeah, seen it. It's it's crazy. It's like straight out of the Simpsons. Apparently, it's not. It's like a decommissioned something or other. Um, but still, it's like really weird. And I saw a zoomed out shot of it as well, where they show where it is. It's like, oh my god, there's like nothing around it. But anyways, but the thing that I uh, two other things that I thought have been really cool this Olympics, the amount of mixed gender team sports. Uh, like I was watching uh, like a like a bobsled uh, event. Uh, there, that was going on. There's, there's been uh, some speed skating stuff. Uh, I think that's a really cool element that they've started to bring into the Olympics. Um, and then, man, the border cross is just so freaking cool. The snowboard cross, I freaking love that event. And uh, Canadian won silver, just barely missed on gold yesterday. The snowboard cross, man. Uh, and if anyone can out there can tell me what the first bit of the course is called, because they're, I, it sounds to me like it's the Wu-Tang. They're saying the Wu-Tang. Uh, like, and I'm like, what is this? Like the Wu-Tang clan? Like, I don't know what they're, they're talking about. They're into the Wu-Tang section. Like, what are you talking about? I'm sure it's not Wu-Tang, but that's what I hear every time. So if someone out there can tell me what it is, if it's the Wu-Tang section or not, that would be greatly appreciated. Brothers and sisters! Brothers and sisters! I don't know what this world is coming to! Thanks for tuning in, folks. Episode 104, just about in the books. Uh, yeah, lots to cover. I know we got some Canucks stuff in there. We got a little carried away with other things, too, but uh, I feel like we needed to get caught up there in a few things. Well, it was definitely a big news week. Uh, coach change, coaching changes. Obviously, the Canucks hired another assistant GM. Um, the other thing we didn't talk about is... Uh, in the around the room segment is Brad Marchand getting a six game suspension and rightfully so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's another one that, you know, showed up. So uh, yeah, it was just a big news week. I think overall in the NHL. Yeah. And now uh, we get ready for Super Bowl. Um, do you have a prediction? Oh, uh, I, I do think the Rams will win, but I, I want the Bengals to win. I mean, they're the underdog. Joe Burrow is, I mean, I think this guy is the next, you know, face of the league i know you got guys like josh allen still 
and Patrick Mahomes. But, I mean, for this kid to essentially get his team to the Super Bowl in his first full year, last year, you know, he got injured halfway through. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable thing. And he's got a hell of a wide receiver in Chase. And Joe Mixon's a good running back. And, yeah, I'm hoping the Bengals pull it off. Do you have any plans for the Super Bowl, Pete? Yeah, I'm going with um, uh, two of my really good friends are, uh, are brewers as well, and uh, one of them brews up in Whistler, so he's bringing a keg home, and uh, he's doing some smoking, he's got a smoker going, so we're just going to hang out, there's just going to be four of us there, and just uh, watch the game, and uh, spend the night up in Whistler, and I haven't been up to Whistler in a while, so yeah, that should be fun. What about you? Do you have a spot in Toronto to watch it? Well, I know Toby's is kind of like a famous sports bar in Toronto, which is just down the road from where I am. So I'm thinking of maybe heading over there for the Super Bowl. Um, But there's a couple other places, but like they're trying to charge you tickets. Like one of the places is like 75 bucks for a ticket to go. And like apparently the the food is catered by Mark McEwen as well, which I thought, you know, like it doesn't look like a super swanky place. It looks like a, a, like a, a music venue. It's called like the Electric Palm or something like that. But yeah, they're charging like 75 bucks for a ticket and the food's catered by Mark McEwen, which again, I'm intrigued. I mean, he's he's a hell of a chef, but yeah, I'm not down to pay 75 bucks just for the just for the experience to sit and watch the Super Bowl in your bar. I hear that. Yeah, that's why we're doing this. It's like what well, we can we can do barbecuing and smoking and and uh, we got kegs and just four of us, so the washroom's right there, you know. Uh, um, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be good fun. I'm looking forward to it, man. I can't wait. Hey, you can follow us online on the Twitter. I'm at Pete underscore Gas, and do check out our Connect Speakeasy outro playlist on Spotify. Celebrating Black History Month, we are adding this thread jam onto it as well. Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Canucks Speak. As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.